The young men would go bring mango leaves and flowers to string on the new doorstep. The father would go buy fresh vegetables and things for the feast. We would help my mother and my aunts cook all this food. And why is this cooked on this day? There would be a story along with it. And then a little bit of the religion will be fed along with all these morsels of delicacies that we were given. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking In Good Faith today with Indra Neela Megam. Thank you, Indra, for making time today. Thank you for having me over here. It's a pleasure. Indra is initially from Chennai in southern India, known formerly as Madras. Lots of us who did geography as children will remember it by that name. Came to the U.S. in the 80s. Her background is in mass communication and technical writing. You're also a storyteller. Yes, I love telling stories if somebody's ready to listen. And very (laughs) often children love to react and connect with you if you tell them a story. Instead of reading from a book or reciting something that's a little foreign to them. Well, I'm hoping for stories today. Oh, I have plenty of them. (laughs) Indra lectures and does workshops on Indian culture and Hinduism and is regarded as very knowledgeable on these topics and has a great way of translating philosophical concepts, which we'll be asking about, to make them understandable for us in day-to-day experience. She's on the board of the Salt Lake Interfaith Roundtable, which is how I made the connection with you. And she's been active in that since it began in the Winter Olympics of 2002. Right. You also are associated with the North American Interfaith Network. That is correct. Indra, I would love to know what your earliest memories are of faith. Like in the house where you grew up, was that a part of the daily or the weekly happenings? It's very interesting because we were just talking about this with a few friends um, this weekend. The reason being after this whole difficult COVID years, this was the first time some of us were even meeting. We were talking about faith and ability to go to our temple, the Hindu temple. And then we said, when do you remember your first experiences as Mm. a Hindu? I'm Hindu by faith. I was born a Hindu, raised a Hindu, and for some reason, that's been my practice, and I had never had a need or a urge to change my faith because I'm pretty much devoted in my faith uh, happenings. How do Hindu children learn about their faith? Because the faith itself is very, what I would call as, it's not an organized faith wherein you say, at this age you teach this, at this age you bring them into this fold. We don't do that. It's Osmosis imbibed from family practices, usually they are family rituals. Rituals of the community are what makes that person a Hindu rather than reading from a text or a book or the teachings of a teacher or prophet. Your question was, how did I first, first conscious relationship to faith or religion is, uh, it's interesting. I might have been four or five years old. And uh, in the summer holidays, we would go to the home of my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, wherein they had a bigger house with a little garden around. And they had a special alcove or a shrine room, which was a pleasure to go in. It was all with the different Hindu deities. And then uh, my aunt would clean the altar, change the old flowers, make fresh decorations, and then we would step out into the garden to pluck flowers to make garlands for the shrine room. And 
I think I would have just clung to her sari fold and walked with her. And as she plucked flowers, she would either sing or recite some verses which were semi-religious. Almost all music in India comes with one form of religious connotation or the other. This is the pre-Bollywood era, of course. <laughs> uh, so those songs would kind of become memorized for me too. Pluck a red flower for the mother goddess. Here's the fragrant jasmine for Shiva. So we would do this, and I think that's my earliest memory. No religious teaching, but a practice. And then the beautiful shrine room would now be decorated and fragrant with all these lovely flowers. And our prayer was just a few minutes of silent meditation. And as I grew up, I learned more and more about the stories, the mythology. In the early years, you accepted the stories without questioning. Teens, you would ask questions, debate. That and that's sounds how, all very normal. Yep. And that's how the religion became part of my upbringing. As you were able to partake of this religious events in the household, there were many festivals, fasts, observances that had to be observed, the rituals of Hinduism, the traditions of the household. So there would be little rules. Oh, today is the day for Ganesha, so we have to make this special dish. But the house has to be cleaned, decorated, like we do for Christmas here. And each person in the house had a role. The young men would go bring mango leaves and flowers to string on the new doorstep so that they know that we are celebrating. The father would go buy fresh vegetables and things for the feast. We would help my mother and my aunts cook all this food. And the very process you would learn, oh, on this day, this is what we cook. And why is this cooked on this day? There would be a story along with it. And then a little bit of the religion will be fed along with all these morsels of <laughs> delicacies that... Uh, we were given. And that's how you would get. So the steps were the first is learn the ritual, then learn the meaning of the ritual, and then question the philosophy, and then you become convinced. And uh, for me as a Hindu, the more I questioned, the more convinced I became. And growing up in a tradition, those traditions can be very comforting, I think, and let you know you're part of something. Right. The comfort factor is you're part of something. And those growing years, you need the comfort of the family enclave and saying not only your family, the extended family, the neighbors, they embrace you. So you don't have to explain why you wear a certain color on a certain day or dress your hair a different way. You're part of that community. And even people of different faith who may be two houses away or even your neighbor or your schoolmate, even they understood you and we understood their faith. And so that was one of the advantages of living in India with so many different faiths surrounding us and yet respecting each one's faith. I think post-independence India, it was really a pleasure for us to grow up that way. I'll give you an incident. I would say my teen years, little later teens, we lived in this enclave. There was a big house and there were little houses surrounding. Everything was enclosed in a little compound. This was in Hyderabad, one of the central Indian towns. Exposure to a lot of faiths. We were Hindu and we were Hindus of the Brahmin practice. Then there were two or three other Hindu families of different styles of worship. One family from Kerala, the other family from northern India. And then our neighbors were Sikhs who practiced the Sikh faith. Two doors down, we had a Muslim family, totally different faith. And then down near the door was this uh, gentleman of the Christian faith. 
And he had a bakery. So that was a fascinating place for us because you would have these exotic dishes never made in our home. And occasionally, if it was a birthday, you can say, oh, you can go to bakery, mama. Mama means uncle and order this. So tell him to buy the eggs, but here's the flour and the sugar. He'll make you biscuits. So here was this exposure yes. to different faiths. So we celebrated Diwali. We celebrated Onam. We celebrated the Sikh Baikash festival. And a little by little, you learn to respect all these. So there was this Hinduism of the North practiced by my neighbors. I know they were a young couple with babies every so often, and my mother would be their helper to teach this young lady, you know, little tricks with a baby. And so we would at the same, oh, auntie, we never did that in our house. Our tradition is this. And my mother would say, this is what I know. This is how you comfort the baby. And then along with that, a little bit of a religious tradition would come in. I think I was very fortunate. Not everybody in India would have had that exposure, what we call this multi-faith yes. bringing up. But I think that's one of the ways I learned my religion. Which really prepared you to do your the interfaith work you do now. Exactly. To understand what people's faith can mean to them apart from, from your own. Yeah, and those years, I don't think there was a conscious effort to learn. It so happened that this enclave of eight houses, that's what happened. I still remember that house with lovely purple bougainvillea growing at the front porch. And then every house took care of you. So I remember if I was late from my school, they would be saying, what happened to Indra? She hasn't come in. It's already dark. Oh, she must have missed the bus. She's walking in. There she is. So there was this thing which I felt was also walking into my space, but also safeguarding me. Yes. So if I needed something, you know, I went somewhere. I couldn't get a ride to come home. There was a neighbor who knew where I lived who'd bring me home. So this village tribal enclosure transported to an urban setting with a little wider exposure to more faiths, more families, more places, uh, more languages even, more dress styles, more food habits, and of course, more religious habits. And we were very lucky we could celebrate every tradition we wanted. <laughs> you could get the good food from every holiday. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> There's yeah. another advantage for interfaith consciousness. <laughs> you get lots of good food. Good food. And then you also know, who. why do we do this thing this way in the home. They do it the different way. Should we include that? Oh, yes, if it's a good tradition, include it. And that was the advantage of Hinduism. Hinduism never said, don't do something. You take the good from every faith and learn with that. For example, I still remember the traditional floor decoration we would do in front of our house. Mm -hmm. uh, when it was Christmas, we would say, Merry Christmas on that. And here's a Hindu household doing that. And we never thought it was something difficult or different. But they would do Happy Diwali in their homes when we had Diwali or Happy Pongal. And they would say, hey, I made kheer. I know you're vegetarian, but this kheer is a milk pudding and you can have it. Today's our festival. It's Eid. That's the Muslim family would bring it over. So, end of Ramadan. Yes. Yeah. And we would have this exposure without a force of learning a different feat. I still remember my best friend, I was telling my husband, they lived down the street. They were Christians, originally from the same towns that we came from in southern India, but they were Christians and they had this tradition and they would invite us over for a Christmas lunch. 
and they would make an effort to cook special dishes without meat because my particular family was a vegetarian family. So that was so very interesting. And I think maybe we were a little unusual, a lucky family, because we lived in a state different from our hometown and had this exposure. I'm so glad that with God's grace, I had this exposure, the ability to strengthen my own faith by being ready to understand other faiths. By the way, you're a marvelous storyteller. I'm, I have so many pictures in my head from what you're describing. Oh, it's, thank it's you. It's very uh-huh. enjoyable. Uh-huh. I am wondering if you could tell me about that time of life when you've learned traditions, you do the questioning, and then you start to make some connection what is it spiritually or with the divine that you believe in or that you feel or you experience that makes you feel that that is real? The one thing is all faith gives you comfort. The mm-hmm. fact of faith is you believe unquestioningly that you will be given solace, you'll be given comfort, and then you find answers for your travails in life. Why am I born? Am I supposed to be here? What happens to me? afterwards. Hmm. These are questions that torment people, really. Uh, We don't recognize it consciously, but that's what leads anyone to a faith. Uh, Most faiths of the world, most denominations of different faiths try to answer these questions. For example, in Buddhism, I mean, I do a lot of interfaith stuff. The reason the Buddha became the Buddha was he was a prince in luxury life. But he couldn't understand why was there a sick man? Why is that dead man being carried down the street? Why? Why can't everybody be happy like me with a beautiful wife and a child and palace life? So he had to answer those questions. Why some suffer while others enjoy? And personally for me, I'm a teenager, a young girl trying to make a life, difficulties of school life and finding a job and eventually getting married and making your lifestyle. There were questions. There were not very clear answers from the family, and they would let you explore. But I wanted an answer, and my faith gave me the answer, saying, we are here. You can go explore, but come back to this fold because we have answers for you. For example, there would be certain rituals in the home, let's say, for a remembrance ceremony for a departed ancestor or grandfather. On those days, there were certain rituals of observances, fast the whole day, don't touch this till the priests have been fed, till then you can't eat. And then here's me feeling very hungry from why am I fasting? It doesn't make any sense. Is grandfather really happy with this ceremony? Why do we have to do this every year? It's a big ritual. So I would ask and complain, but I would assist the elders who are performing the ceremony, finish the prayers, and then the lovely food would say, finally, hey, it was worth waiting the whole day for this food. And then you help clean up. And then you would do that as a help for the rest of the family members who were observing, even though I personally didn't believe in that ritual at that point. And then there's there's a point in life, suddenly, okay, this ritual has value. This is what gives me the habit forming to believe. Uh, Let me give you an example. When you first start learning to drive, 14, 15, it's a little tough. You're excited. You wanted to get that driver's license along with your classmate. Who got it first? My birthday was before yours, so I got it. But then it's scary when you're first driving without the other person in the car. But then what makes you be safe is what? Follow the rules. And you believe and trust that others are following the rules. 
that'll take care of you. When it's red, you stop. When it's green, you go. And you trust others are following. And the reason for trust is not that everybody will do that. You'll always have the one who breaks the rule. And then there's difficulty not only for the person who breaks the rule, but even for you. Yet, you have to have that faith saying life will go on because people have experienced and from experience, they've given you this path. Let's say I'm following the Latter-day Saints style of Christianity. They have experienced certain faith rules and they're giving you the teachings of their wisdom. And they said, this is what we have learned. Follow this. Let's say I'm going to follow the teachings of the Smartha system of philosophical Hinduism that my family follows. And they give you these teachings saying, this is what you will do. This is how you will believe. These are the rituals that give you happiness. If you eat these foods, this is the result. If you avoid these practices like do not lie, do not walk into the space of another person, be respectful for anybody's thoughts and feelings, then they will respect your thoughts and feelings. Wow, what a wonderful concept. Do unto others what you want for yourself. So that's what Hinduism taught me. And it taught me with lovely stories. The stories helped me remember. And maybe I should ask if there are particular verses or a story, whether that's from the Puranas or the Gita or whatever it might be, or family tradition, that are things that you hold on to. It's like the Lord's Prayer that comes with you all the time. You're asking something like that. that. Um, In Hinduism, we don't have a set holy book. We learn verses which are called slokas or bhajans, which we can repeat to our own self. What I learned as a child, there's one verse which is called, and it's in Tamil. I'm going to recite that. A lot of prayers are in Sanskrit, but there are prayers which are in the local language. The language spoken at my home was Tamil, and this verse is in Tamil, which is from Chennai region, to which you have some connections because you've traveled with your BYU groups to those cities. Here's a little one which we recited, which was a two-liner prayer, very apt and fit for a child. Kulla kulla naam, gundu vaira naam, velli komba naam, vinayaka namastubhyam. And after you do that, there's a certain ritual of bowing wherein you hold your hands and do squats. At that time, we didn't know. And they would say, say this, and I'll explain the meaning of this prayer. And then if you do the squats by holding your uh, crossed hands to hold your ears, it will help you become more intelligent and you can pass your exams without problems. Okay, it didn't make sense, but they taught us that and we believed that and we did it. Now in America, The other day I was reading AARP magazine and it says that is an exercise wherein the nerve ends in your ear lobes are pulled and it stimulates the thinking. And they're teaching that exercise to autism kids so that it helps them not focus only on one thing. Autistic kids focus on one and they don't want to move. So it helps them focus their thought process in other things. I said, wow. How did my, was it Hinduism? Was it lifestyle? I don't know. It's all intermingled when you live a Hindu lifestyle. After enough thousands of years go by, it's hard to tell the wisdom. Was taught this exercise and the prayer and the joke and the prayer itself is very interesting. It says it's a little short young man with a big pot belly with big fan-like ears of an elephant. He's there. He walks with you, protects you and helps you achieve what you want. So here's the picture of a little pot-bellied child with elephant-like ears, 
And it's fun, right? The child imagines this figure, and yet you're uttering a prayer. The last line saying, I bow to you and the spirituality in you so that you may give me the blessings of that spirituality. That last line is the serious part. The first line is all this little animation type of drawing that forms in your mind. And then you have the exercise along with that. So there is how Hinduism is taught to young children. We don't say sit down on Sunday and read this book. It could be any day. Light the family lamp. When the family lamp is lit, go spend a minute to bow before the lamp. And then let that light bring you inspiration at that a 14-year-old's inspiration. Maybe I want to will, you know, do well in this ball game that I'm going to go play today. A 21-year-old may be saying, hey, I want to make sure that I can meet that young man who seemed to be a very pleasant person to meet. I want to meet that friend of mine who had that poetry book she said she'll share with me. So aspirations are different at your different stations in life. But every aspiration has to be helped with religious support. Like you said, the faith group, the support of the community is there. Go astray, but we are here to lead you back into the fold. And that comfort factor was available for me always in Hinduism. There were years when I did not believe in all the rituals. I do not practice all the rituals that my mother or my grandmother or grandfather practiced. Some of those are good to change. Hinduism is a 5,000-year-old religion. Some of the old practices do not meet our needs. Every faith changes. Christianity changed. Mohammedanism or Muslim faith changed over the years. And the geographical region, there were needs different, and they changed. Uh, We know, like even our own Latter-day Saint of the Mormon Church, they changed too to the times because We have faith leaders who have a vision, who have an inspiration to help you walk with the times so your faith, core faith stays, but helps you meld with the times. And that is true of Hinduism. We give an example. Think of the banana plant. It bends with the storm. That's why it survives even a tsunami. Mm. The plant survives. They say, be like that plant, bend, but stay put in your place so your faith stays with you. And nice to have an image to keep that concept in your mind. Right. And that imagery, that mythology is what sustains Hinduism. Not a book, not a Bible, not the book of Gita verses. In fact, of the 1.2 billion people in India, they say 85% are Hindus. And if you ask them, I would say only about 5% know the Bhagavad Gita. The others say, yes, yes, that's a book, good book. I have to read it sometime. But they have not read it. So it's not required reading to read our Vedas or Gitas. But the imagery, the story, that's important. Do you know the story of Rama and Sita, the ideal man and the ideal Yes, that I know. I know it in different versions, different ways it was taught me, different regional differences. But the core story is the ideal man who protected his wife. So that is the core value, the moral story. Most Hindus know that story. But if you ask them, have you read the Bhagavad Gita? They'll say no. In fact, I myself have not let. I know the 18 chapters. I know the concept of the whole Bhagavad Gita, the philosophy there. But if you ask me, have I read it in its original text? No, I have not. And it is not required reading for my faith. Which is very useful information for those of us learning to understand. 
right. the various types of Hinduism. This has to do with a human's connection to the divine, to God. Mm-hmm. Is there a concept or is this a practice in your life of praying or reaching out to divinity and expecting to receive answers? Right. Life is full of travails and happiness. It comes, the ups and downs are commingled, and that's what life is. And in Hinduism, we are taught when you are doing well, it's your birthday. The first thing is I don't plan a party, but I say, today you will go to the temple, offer a special prayer, and remember God, and say thanks to everything that's happened to you in life. After you've done that, we'll do your party, we'll do your birthday cake. You are always taught to say thanks to God and and recognize the spiritual inheritance in you. Mm. You'll realize your family is doing something special for you on that birthday, maybe. I took the birthday as an example. They may make a special sweet dish, or they may make a dish that you like, or they may buy you something that you were waiting for for the whole year. And then you know, oh, there's this loving family behind me taking care of me. And then while my mother would often say, I offered a special prayer for you because today is your birthday. Mm. Oh, there's somebody else praying for me. So I'm still in the fold. There's this support system for me. When I had a medical procedure about six weeks ago, my whole community was there behind me saying, can we bring you food? My neighbors brought me food. My neighbors helped me walk, you know, to recover from the surgery. Not only the Hindu families, but every neighbor was there to support me. And I think my faith gave me the strength to understand, to take this fold of extended support of the families and survive. When you're down and sad, the rote learning of religious rituals helps me. Okay, today is the day of the full moon, so we have to do certain ceremonies today. Whether I like it or not, my repeating that (laughs) rote helps me focus. Yes. It's then, okay, I've already got into the system, cleaning the shrine room, lighting the lamp, and then, you know, saying these prayers, whether I believe or not. By the time I'm finished with this rote and ritual, I have already been comforted and solaced and brought back into the fold of living life. I think that's what Hinduism is about. Is that that, your favorite part of what you believe? Yes. Some of the rituals that in the early days, you, without questioning, you followed them. Then you question them and you don't want to do them. And as I grow older, I find the value of that. That's what bridges me, my civilization from an older generation to the next generation. For example, some of the rituals of lifestyle, we have moved out of the heartland of Hinduism, which is India, moved to a different culture. The children don't follow the rituals or even the obligations and expectations what our grandmothers did. The way I bridge it is my grandparents themselves were shocked with what we as a generation did. We moved out of the home fold, Mm. moved to a foreign country thousands of miles away, But they said, okay, you're doing a good life, move, go. They gave us that support saying, it's okay. And they bent the rules, adjusted their rules and rituals. Yes, you're in a foreign country, do what you can. You don't have to observe this tradition the way we did it in the village. They already made adjustments. We are in a foreign country, we make adjustments and connections and imbibe new cultural traditions, accept the changing times, We have exposure to media, which is a letter took one month to reach someone in India. 
in the 20s and 30s when you read about retro books. Now it's there in a minute. And if, yes. it, if your reply to your email doesn't come back in two minutes, you say, what's happening? Is the satellite not working? <laughs> Do you remember the time when you had to wait a month before you got a reply to your letter? Things have changed. So even the rituals have changed. The expectations have changed. Marriage traditions have changed. What was traditional in the 1920s is no longer the tradition now. And you're going to accept a different norm and a different lifestyle. And I'm so surprised my mother, who is in her 80s, accepts that change more easily than me, the interim generation. And that gives me the strength. If she can accept change and bend and change, I should be more welcoming to accept the changes. Because my children, my nephews, my nieces, they still are Hindus. They love the tradition. And whenever they reiterate that, that says, hey, they know the faith. What they are doing is they have not forgotten the core faith. They are there with me. That gives me solace. That bridging between generations is what Hinduism helped me build. They're still being the banana trees. Yes, and, that and, is and important. And bending and adapting. Right. And then the faith that I have gives me the strength to understand the culture that was practiced in my village 70 years ago is not the culture that I'm going to have. I myself changed. I don't wear those traditional clothes. I don't maintain those observances. Why do I have to accept what the next generation is doing with that same welcoming way of saying, as long as the faith is maintained, and that's important, and as long as we teach them core values, it's going to be there. The bridging is going to be there. Thank you. That's beautifully stated. Because you can have a home shrine and mm -hmm. make observances at home, why is it meaningful to you to have a temple like you have where you live, okay. a place that you can go or that the group can come together? A very, very good question. And let me explain a little bit of Hindu faith to answer this question. In Hinduism, we don't have a set Sabbath. There is no one holy day. Every day is a holy day. There are special days, feast days, fast days, the full moon day, the new moon day, or the day for a certain saint or a teacher. So those are special days where you could do little extra elaborate ritual worship or not. Even your day-to-day -day worship is what you make of it. I have a family friend who practices meditation and recites the Holy Scriptures for one hour before he'll step into day. He's retired, older gentleman, and then he would then come and partake of his breakfast. And then, mm. I am ready for you kids. What do you want to do? So I would remember the statement from him. I'm ready for you kids. What do you want to do? But he finished his ritual, which was like a couple of hours. My ritual in the early days when I was a youngster, I had a 20-minute commute to my job. And my prayer was recited during that 20-minute commute. Mm. I was in my car driving, but that 20 minutes is when I recited my prayer. I know my husband, his job woke him up early in the morning at 4 o'clock, and then he had to be ready to take his bus to his long commute to his work. But his ritual was five minutes of meditation at the home shrine. And I know he practices it even now, even before I'm up. He wakes up before me because that's his routine. I know he feels frustrated if he cannot practice that routine. So that's there. I would know by the lit lamp saying, oh, Neil had been up. Ah. He has done his prayers when I come down to offer my prayers. So the home shrine is where your focus for 
your faith is because you clean the home shrine, you light the lamp, you decorate with fresh flowers, and you offer a prayer. Now, why do I have to go to the temple? Let's say you are in India. There's a temple at the corner of every street, just like we have a ward house <laughs> and a meeting house here in Utah for, yes. for your faith everywhere. But we don't have that here. The other thing is you can go to the temple for more social reasons than just religious faith. We don't go there to listen to a lecture by the priest. or We, we do have people coming and giving discourses or giving a speech, but that is not part of the worship ritual. The worship is very personal, even at the temple. You go, you pray. Sometimes you'll ask the priest to help you, saying, could you offer this prayer with these flowers and fruits on behalf of me? Because it's a special day for me. Or on behalf of my child, who has got a difficult day ahead for him, I want to offer this prayer for my child. Mm. So the priest will say, okay, don't worry, madam. Everything will be good. That word from the priest is a solace for me. And then he will offer the prayer to the shrine in the temple and say, here's the blessings of the shrine. Here are the flowers and the fruits which have been blessed, take it home. And some unknown reason that solace gives a comfort factor. Maybe it was the tradition. Maybe that's the culture that's imbibed in me. Going to the temple and getting the blessings there is special. But if I don't go to the temple, it doesn't matter. Because of this COVID, there's been a whole year when I haven't been to the temple because they've restricted entry to our Hindu temple. Right. They said, watch it on Zoom, watch it on video. <laughs> we are streaming video of all the ceremonies. Streaming video is not exactly the same. You don't have the touchy-feely sensory smells and ringing bells and being there in that special place is not there. You do see the ritual. You can see it, but it's not the same. I haven't been there, but I haven't become any less of a Hindu because I have my home shrine to give me sustenance and strength. In particularly in a foreign country, the temple is more a social obligation to go meet people of similar faith, exchange ideas, support them, congratulate them. In fact, the other day, a person came, Indra auntie, give us your blessings. Today is our wedding anniversary day. It's so special because this young couple reveres me to ask for that blessing. And it's so special because they are taking me into their family fold. Mm. So that is where the social obligations are met in a temple for a Hindu. Otherwise, the home shrine is the most important. Indra, is there something I should ask you, but I don't know to ask about your faith and what that means to you as you live your life? I'm amazed. I live in a country where my faith is not the predominant faith. And I also live in a state where the denomination practice in this state is a different denomination from Christianity in other states of the United States, where the predominant denomination is different. But I'm amazed at the curiosity people have. And they say, can we ask you about why do you wear the red dot? What is special today? You are dressed differently today. Can we come to your place of worship and learn about it? And the welcoming curiosity, I find that very nice. And when I tell them this is what our faith is, and we do not have proselytizing in Hinduism because that's not part of our faith. But yet they say, when they tell us, can we tell you about our faith? Can we give you our books? 
yes, I'm very happy to read your books. I'm very happy to listen. And they understand that I have my faith, my core faith, my neighbors. They will invite me to a Relief Society meeting or to celebrate Christmas. In fact, for our Christmas dinners, we do this round robin. One of the meals is held in my house, which really doesn't celebrate Christmas. It's not our Hindu celebration, but it's a celebration of the community. (laughs) How welcoming they are to learn about me and how welcoming they are to teach about their lifestyle. That is so special. And I think it's pleasure to live in Utah to do this. And since you brought it up and people are now asking themselves the question, tell me about the dot. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that you notice of late, it's more like a makeup mark. Mm -hmm. It does not mean that you're married, not married, all those things. You'll see young girls wearing it. My sister doesn't wear the dot. And very often, if I wear a pan and a shirt, I may not wear the dot. I'm a little older person. I'm the older generation. I tend to wear it more often than not. When you go to the temple, one of the sacraments offered is the red powder, which you place on your forehead saying, you have been to a worship service. Mm. That's there. If you ask somebody in India, why do you? Oh, we always wear it. That shows that I'm not unhappy. That's the key word. So... If you're married, you're not unhappy is the connotation. So unless you have been widowed or you're in sorrow or in mourning, you always wear the dot. It doesn't mean that if you're married, you wear the dot. Very often in Hinduism, when somebody gives an explanation, we say, that sounds good. Yeah, okay, that's fine. So very often in a Western country like United Kingdom or United States or Canada, People have come up with a lot of theories saying it represents the third eye, it represents being married, it represents this. Okay, that's good explanations too, but that's not the reason why I wear it. I wear it like here you'd see people saying, oh, I can't go out. I have to put on my face. I have to Mm. put on my lipstick. Why? You can walk out without that. (laughs) So that's the same concept. For me, my day doesn't begin till I look at my face in the mirror and I have put on my dot for the day. The dot can be different colors. Usually red is very favorite color for Indians. And also red is the color of the kumkum that's offered in the temple. Could be different colors. It could be stickers. It could be modern stickers with the bling factor built in, which young teenagers love to match their clothes. But is it religious? If you look at old sculptures and paintings of the 10th century, the 8th century, no, the women don't wear that. They have a head jewel, but they don't have a dot. I think it came in a little later. The faith is so old. So it has become so part and parcel of the tradition that it is a Hindu factor. If you are in India, many people who are not even Hindus will still wear the dot to match their clothes. Uh, That doesn't mean they are a Hindu. It's just a practice, a social, cultural habit of being Indian. Indra Neela Megam, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you for having you with this audience and asking such very interesting questions. I hope I've been helpful. That's our time for today. Thanks to Indra Neela Megam for generously sharing her stories, her traditions, and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you like the show, be sure and support us by leaving a comment or a review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. 
All of our episodes are online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.